are so many guests that I've had on this podcast that just light me up. And this is absolutely no exception. My friend Lee Keylock is on the call today, and I'm eager to get started into this conversation. Our listeners will be interested in so much of what we have to talk about here. Um, Along those conversations around storytelling, authenticity, and how we deal with trauma using stories. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. And I don't know who you were describing in that intro, but I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the the signature humility over here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Well, Lee, let's start with the question that I love to ask my guests as we get started is, um, I'd love for you to share something about yourself that most people might not know about you, not in your LinkedIn profile or your bio. And just as an explanation for those listeners who haven't been following for the last 200 and some episodes, um, I love to ask this question because it gives a little insight into the person beyond what we're going to talk about. And it often leads right in full circle into what we want to talk about with the topic. So what do you think? (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I listened to some of your other podcasts, which are great. And I know that you pose that question, but then I got thinking, I'm like, oh no, what do I sort of come up with and I honestly um a couple of things that people don't know um well anyone that knows me really well knows that I used to work in a nightclub years ago I used to in New York City for about nine years and it was a pretty sort of crazy place as you can imagine I was a kid from England coming out but I got to meet a lot of cool people in there a lot of celebs and stuff and I actually got to couple of things I actually got to one dance the can-can with Liza Minnelli on stage one night at the end of work um she just popped up on stage and I'm like I'm hopping up too so well this whole can-can thing at the end of the night it was like four in the morning so that was pretty fun um and the other thing is I actually got friendly um with Daniel Day Lewis who used to come in the club the the actor and he was um we used to go at the same gym around the corner from this club and he's a boxer too. I don't know if people know that about him. He used to be, he used to sort of train as a boxer. So I used to go in and spar with him a little bit in this gym that we used to work in when he was training for the film, The Boxer. And he, uh, he asked me through this trainer, we used to have this trainer called Frank. And he asked me if I would go to LA with him when they were filming the movie. I think it was LA and train with him during a movie and of course I said no because I had a job and a life and a, an apartment so I oh. said no to him and <laughs> he was crazy yeah he was kind of fine and so who knows how that would have turned out if I'd have gone there maybe it would have been the next movie star with him who knows I doubt it but that was so yeah <laughs> lots of little things like that not many people know that there you have oh it. my gosh that's so much fun I yeah. love that I, well, I have to ask um did you regret not going with him? Did you even ask him what he would pay so that you could no. take a, a leave from your job? No, you no, just said, none no, of that. I don't think so. No, none of that. It was, um, what was funny is when years later, my wife, who is an actress, I was telling her this story and she's like, "Why you got to chuck, blah, 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 you know, and we were in a post office in New York. He used to live off Gramercy Park, which is where we used to live in that area. And we, I bumped into him in a post office once. So he started rapping with me. And my wife was sort of mouth agape in this post office. But no, I have no regrets whatsoever. And she she has regrets and she wasn't even part of the story at the time. <laughs> so she's like, you could have done it for me. I'm like, the future me. 
<laughs> so, yeah, but no, no regrets. It's life is sliding doors, right? It's like I have a, you know, it, it's meant to be what's meant to be. So totally yeah. agree. I love that attitude. I think yeah. about that a lot because um, I always think, I think of a conversation I had with this older woman years ago, and then we lost her suddenly. She was one of the healthiest 70 year olds I've ever met. And she just, she just died. And it was so shocking to all of us who knew her MC BB was her name. And I just like to say her name to keep her, keep her memory alive. So MC BB, she was talking to me one time, right after I left my job, my full-time job to become completely self-employed. I've always had a side hustle, but this was like a big step, of course. And I said, I'm just bummed that it took me this long to find what I'm really good at, that I can have real impact and still make income. And she said, sir, you had to go through all of what you went through to get to this point. You couldn't have done it earlier and you wouldn't have had the insights or the ability to guide people without having had your own struggles and experiences. So you are exactly where you are supposed to be. For sure. And it For was, sure. I kind of knew that, but hearing this 70 year old fabulous woman, like just smart and funny and <clears throat> active and she had just won a tennis tournament in partners tennis. Um, and to hear her say that just was so encouraging and she's right. So I love that you, you have that same kind of mentality about it. Yeah. It's like a, I mean, every experience you have, right. Is a <clears throat> leads you to where you're at. Right. And you can't, if you took any one of those out the equation, I mean, I don't think about this ad nauseum or anything, but if you take any one of those experiences or or stories or songs out of the equation, it changes. Something has to change, right? So it would change the trajectory of where you are now, which is this place that you love, right? So, yeah, she's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I miss her. So um, coming back to our our guides and the people who say something that changes everything for us. When we had our first conversation on the phone, you mentioned um, an author that changed your trajectory. And um, I would love to hear the story, if, if you don't mind sharing that, about how you met this author and what ended up happening with that. <laughs> yeah. The, um, <clears throat> it was actually an author, to be honest, that I didn't know much about or never. I, I actually hadn't heard of Colin McCann. He's an Irish writer um, who lives in New York now. And I didn't know. I, know, I was an English teacher for years. Um, and I still am to a degree, right? I still, you can't really sort of take it out of your system. No. But I met him, um, I met Colin um, after I was teaching in Newtown in Sandy Hook, right? And uh, if most people, when they hear that, the name of that town, they sort of can recall the, the mass shooting that happened in, in our community. Um, it's going to be 10 years in this December when that happened and 26 people were killed. Um, in sort of under four minutes. Um, I worked in the high school, which is just up the street from the elementary school, but a lot of my friends, you know, and colleagues obviously worked in the elementary school. So <clears throat> as part of the, the sort of um, healing that I wanted or the hope that I wanted to sort of instill back into my classroom with the students and think about how we heal, somebody handed me Colm's book and it was called Let the Great World Spin. And it was a book, and this was actually in December. Our school shut down um, 
the the murders happened a couple of weeks before Christmas and uh, or 10 days, 10, 11 days before Christmas. And somebody handed me that book and I actually read it. Um, I don't know. I just picked it up and started reading it. And it really spoke to me because it was a novel that, that very much underscored this idea of um, hope that's really hard for and, and sort of actions, feet on the ground action sort of oriented. It's not, it wasn't cliche. And, you know, so many of the narratives after, I mean, I didn't know this is what I learned, but so many narratives after a traumatic event like that is, uh, there's sort of, you know, will people will say prayers? Well, yes, we like prayers, but prayers aren't going to help people move from A to B sometimes, you know, in their life when you need pragmatic sort of tangible stuff to help you get through trauma. So this was something that I thought could work. So I just reached, I reached out to him um, and <clears throat> I asked him if I could have free copies of his book. <laughs> so Because you're an English teacher and no budget. Yeah, we, yeah, plus we, first of all, the, you know, the curriculum of any school is, um, I mean, thankfully in the last few years, there's been a, a sort of re revolution around the curriculums <clears throat> and what we try and teach our kids, but it used to, basically it was also tragic, right? I think I was telling you in a previous chat that somebody wrote a book called Readicide and it's how we commit, commit Readicide on our youth, right? By giving them all these tragic mm -hmm. things to read all the time or things they can't find themselves in all the time, right? And I'm not, exactly. I'm not discounting the classics, but but it can't all just be classics, right? You, you, we have to sort of contemporize um, our thinking. Mm -hmm. So this was one book that I thought um, that I thought could help. So um, his publisher, I reached out to his publisher. A friend of mine knew his publisher actually in the school, and he wrote me back within like forty-eight hours. I got a response from him, and then we he he made a visit up to the school. Um, and we chatted and he chatted with some of the students um, who were reading the book at the time. And the rest is history. Ten years later, you know, sort of, um, I mean, the, this idea for, I know you're probably going to get to my work, but the idea that, that this book, right, sort of the, the story that this book, it was a polyphonic book. There were many tragic elements in the book or, or sort of tragic characters, but there are these scenes in the book that are just gorgeous. And it's sort of like you aim, even if the, there's a crack in the wall or a crack in a window where a tiny bit of light is coming in. You head for that. Like if you can head for that and be optimistic about that, you don't, you know, a candle, right? A candle. If you light a candle in a dark room, it's going to light the whole room pretty much. So it doesn't have to be this epic thing. And I just wanted that for the kids in my classroom, myself too, you know, and the mm -hmm. teachers in the school, whoever wanted to read it, I wanted people to read it. And he came, we chatted and then, this sort of whole story exchange thing, at least in my life, um, started that trajectory of how we use stories to, to heal and stories as currency for connection and reconnection to yourself as well. Mm, I love that, partly because of something else you said in our previous conversation, which was that um, all of the adults were telling the high school students not to talk mm. about the tragedy, um, but not to stop them from processing, but to stop them from maybe talking to media who were going to exploit whatever story they could about uh, a sibling or the, the, the murderer himself that went to that high school. Um, and so all of the adults were saying, don't talk about it, don't talk about it. And they started to internalize it and not talk about it even when they needed to, to adults that they trusted. And that was a huge part to me because so many times 
our identity is wrapped up in a tragedy that we experienced, even if we weren't the direct person experiencing it. So um, I'm thinking about all of these second and third victims of those murders, people who seem unrelated, a student at the high school that didn't know the shooter and didn't necessarily know any of those children, the, the kindergartners or the teachers that were murdered, they are still a victim. And this experience is part of their identity as being part of, as soon as they say the word Sandy Hook or Newtown, people associate it with that experience. So for you to take that and say, I know that even if you weren't directly related, you still have this story that is narrating in your head that unless we start to explore it and shift it so that your identity isn't tied to it in such a negative way, they're going to suffer for their whole lives with that, that knowledge, that part of their identity. So that said, um, tell me about the first time you did the story exchange and what that looked like. And then our, I think our listeners will kind of infer what, what, what you do. <laughs> yeah. So the organization that I, <clears throat> that I, um, help run is called narrative Four, the number four, and you can go online and sort of Google it. But the, um, the premise is where it's originally it started simply it's an artist founded organization. Right. And we wanted to connect people through the use of story and how, you know, sort of what is the highest aim of storytelling, at least the bunch of authors that got together um, in Colorado with Colin McCann and Lisa Consiglio. This was even pre me. Um, it was a few months before um, I met Colin. They had sort of dreamed up this notion, how best to use stories, right? How can we use stories to really impact uh, and give people agency on the ground as opposed to sort of this passive, somewhat passive act, right? Of some, like all the way people relate to books is a passive act or, or any type of story. So um, the, the, the premise is quite simple. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of acting trick really right it's like you take on the persona of somebody else so if you sarah were and i were partnered you i would tell you a story from my life um and you would listen just to understand you wouldn't listen to respond you're not responding you're just listening deep listening right and um and then <clears throat> i could ask you questions at the end just to clarify certain things but i'm not asking you questions about meaning i'm just asking you questions maybe to catch some of the essence, like of the story. What was that name? What year? What was month was that again? What country? Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever it is. And then you would do the same. I would tell you a story and vice versa. But then we have to retell. We go back to a story circle and retell in the first person one another. So I become you. I literally say, hi, my name is Sarah. Uh, I am in Missoula, right? Right now um, in Montana. And um, I think it's in Montana. There goes my English geography in America. But yes. the, you know, that's what I say. And I actually embody your story. And there's something transformative that happens when you do that, right? It's, there's no, the distance is absolutely collapsed when you take on the first person of somebody um, in this respect, with permission, with consent, this, everybody's there through invitation to do this. Nobody's robbing stories or stealing stories, right? You have permission. Yeah. So, and it's an incredibly powerful thing 
to witness and to experience um, that sort of intimacy between two people, which then becomes sort of 10 people in the story exchange circle. And you hear this cornucopia of stories, right? And, and there's no hierarchy of stories. Like it could be a simple story, what we perceive maybe as a simple story of, I don't know, maybe a sports triumph, whatever. And then some people will go to some of their, their most painful moments, right? And I just remember that in Newtown, when I did this in, I was teaching juniors at the time, that the first class that I did it with, I didn't want stories of, well, it's not that I didn't, it's, I didn't ban any stories, but um, I, I didn't want them to tell necessarily stories about that day, right? The day, you know, 12, 14. Um, so I encouraged them to sort of think of other stories from their life because we don't want to singly be defined by a single narrative, right? Or the danger of a single sort of story. And they started telling stories about, you know, the usual things, right? First kisses gone wrong or crazy grandpas at a Thanksgiving table or, you know, a time, actually some of the kids would tell times they slept in a car and they were homeless for a couple of days, like things I never even knew like existed in their past. Right. And all of a sudden we sort of, um, and it was cathartic. And I remember, um, I remember one girl, I won't mention her name, but she wrote in a journal afterwards because I always have them reflect afterwards, but she told a pretty harrowing story, um, that involved um, the, a suicide and things like that. And she said she's never been able to tell that story and people have an opinion about this narrative that's attached to her. She couldn't sort of rewrite the record of her own story in public because she, she couldn't get through it emotionally. But the young man that she told the story to did retell that story and it gave her a new sense of life that finally this, this truth had been told by this other kid in her persona. Like it was the most sort of amazing moment and um anyway that's sort of how it went um and then we connected and, and then we connected kids from from newtown high school to um crane high school in in chicago north end of chicago which and these kids deal with sort of gun violence on a daily basis so there was a sort of natural bridge not that we wanted to focus on that at all and we didn't but that's sort of how it manifests. So then we brought two completely different demographics together, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. You know, we brought all of this sort of together in this space. And what happened was these kids just walked towards each other and found out they had so much in common, regardless of, you know, the optics of how they look or how they dress or, or whatever. And they actually hung out after the story exchange way longer than the story exchange. <laughs> so we knew we were onto something, you know, we knew we had this thing. If you, if you really, I mean, it's like James Baldwin says, right. It's much harder to hate somebody close up. If you, if you meet somebody and you learn something intimately about them, you cannot dismiss them as much. And the, and the person telling is also seen and validated. So it became this whole we didn't even realize what we had in this little method of ours, you know, so until we sort of did it. So, Well, there were multiple times as you were sharing that, that I had those chills that come up my spine and all the hairs go up in the back of my neck. <laughs> and um, that's, that is always a, a phenomenal indication for me, not only of the impact of the work you're doing, but the way you are telling the story. Um, I think sometimes we as storytellers forget the impact of the stories we're telling about other 
people on the perception of us. So as I'm listening to your story, I have this whole different view of you as a human being because of the way that you're telling somebody else's story. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I love about those interactions. And I'm very privileged. I get to bear witness to a lot of these stories that get told. And, and many times it's the first time that people are telling these stories. You know, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, well, I've never told this to anyone as a lead in right. to a story. And that's when, you know, people trust the process enough um, or they feel safe enough to tell those stories. And that, that is the greatest gift of all, right? To hold somebody's story like that mm-hmm. and be responsible for it is a huge undertaking. There's nothing, um, you know, you can't minimize that, right? So there's a lot of prep work that goes, we don't just throw people together and say, okay, we're going to do this. You know, there's some prep work and, you know, you want to sort of create a, a space of um, where people can act very courageously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's awesome. <laughs> people should try it. They should sign up and try one. We run them every week online too. Well, definitely. I definitely want to participate in that. And if if not as a participant, as an observer, because this is this is why I do what I do. This is why my podcast has 250 plus episodes is because I I hold that so close. That's such an honor that people share these stories. And um, you're right. It is a matter of creating that environment of trust and courage. And I think um, what I love about the way that you're sharing these stories is that I know just from hearing your perception of them in your presence, a calming safety. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's campfire stuff, really. I mean, if we, if we just, we could rewind all the way back to <clears throat> these incredible cave painters and stuff, right? They used to mm-hmm. scroll on the walls. They used to crawl through these, um, you know, caverns, right? And um, there's a great poem. Um, it's actually called The Cave Painters. Irish poet, I can't think of his name now. But essentially, you know, these people wrapped this cloth or something around these, you know, these rudimentary torches and lit them, right, and went into these caves and they painted on these caves. And, I mean, that's the first story. Like some of these are the first stories being told, right, or being shared, or they're leaving some mark um, mm-hmm. for somebody to sort of relate to and, um, you know, whether it's just knowledge dissemination or whatever or, or just this, this desire to be seen right? Even beyond your years, right? When we're no longer here, um, like your friend that you were talking about at the beginning of this show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of legacy is really important. So I think stories, we have this natural tendency to want to tell stories. We just have to provide the forum and the place for people to come together and do that. And I think we need more of it in the world, not less of it, you know? Agreed. Agreed. I was just thinking about the power of sharing someone else's story um, and the exponential growth that we can experience as a result of that. Uh, At the last keynote I did, I had people try to remember a time where they were mentored or had a boss or somebody in a position of authority that they had an experience where they were just overwhelmingly inspired by them or that they just felt inspired to do their own thing as a result of a conversation with somebody that was in a position of authority. And then I had them share them with the person next to them. So I gave them a couple minutes each to share, to swap stories. And then I asked for volunteers and permission 
for people to share the story of the person that they heard. So from their, just like what you're doing with these story exchanges, having them talk about the story, not necessarily first person, but just to tell the story. And I remember this moment, it, it was one of those, oh yes, this is what I love. I'm here for a reason. One woman shared a story that the other woman told her. And I said, okay, um, to the audience, what words would you use to describe this boss that she just told the story about? What words, what phrases would you use? And from the audience, um, a leader, compassionate, inspiring, um, ambitious, you know, these really great words, powerful words to describe this person. And I said, how many of you know that person? And only the woman who originally told the story raised her hand out of a sea of 300 faces. (laughs) Wow. And I said, wow, those are pretty big words to use for somebody you've never met. Now, how many of you know the woman who originally told the story and I got her name and maybe a dozen hands went up and I said, okay, so very few of you know this woman, what words would you use to describe her having told this story about her boss? Yeah. And the words were beautiful, you know, again, compassionate, empathetic, kind, really the the legacy words you want people to use to describe you. And I said, now think about that for a second. You have these amazing words for people you've never met because of a story told by someone you've never met. Now think about the impact of that and how your reputation, your ability to be an ambassador for your people grows as a result of simply sharing that story. Mm. Because the teller, the way that the person tells it speaks volumes about the person themselves as much as it does about the person they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I witness, I witness that all the time, thankfully, which is why I say it's a great privilege to see that, you know, in action. It's amazing what is housed in a, in a five-minute story, you know? Yes. When you really unpack a five-minute or a three-minute story, you can unpack that. And it is like, um, you know, it's like an umbilical cord between people, right? It's like this this life-giving thing, right? You know so much about the other individual. You can at least infer so much, right? And that's just one story. Imagine if you had 10 yeah. from the person. It's exponential. <laughs> it is. Uh, that's... And, and it includes so many other characters in that story that then develop living, breathing reputations. Yeah, and it shatters. It, it also, I think about group mentality, right? I think about that. It's, this is a single moment between a few people or 300 people in your space, right, that you're talking about. But then I think about social media and I think about, and that's overwhelming, right, when you've got thousands or millions of followers and they can buy into these sort of single destructive narratives about people or groups or whatever, right? You can pick your poison and it becomes an echo chamber. And yet one, one story can dismantle an entire theory you have about people or a stereotype. type. Yeah, a stereotype. One story can dismantle that. And I've seen that happen. We do a lot of work in the Middle East. We've done a ton of work in South Africa, in Northern Ireland, um, you know, some pretty beautiful, but sort of hard places, right? To, of um, given the history of some of these places. And 
and it can all get undone in a second. And that's what you have to build from. Um, you know, somebody told me in um, the West Bank when I was there that, that some of the best, I think it was Colm actually met the person that said this, but that some of the best buildings can be built out of rubble, the rubble of like, how do you keep going? Like, and that's the truth that like you can dismantle things and rebuild better, revision something from a, from a single um, note or a single story, right? I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the, the story of music. Is you only have so many notes. Yeah, <laughs> you for sure. Deconstruct a, strong, a song and and rebuild it, and it's a completely different thing. It's not necessarily better, but it's definitely different, and sometimes better. Right. Um, wow. So when you think about um, the time when you started with this work with this organization, Narrative Four, um. And you think about a moment, I, I can kind of see you already have kind of an image in your head when you realize that this was it for you, because you've done so many different things. And I would encourage our listeners to um, check out some of what you've done through your website and through uh, your LinkedIn profile, but you've done so many different things. And this is sticky. This is 10 years with this organization and you are still completely enamored with the work you're doing. So what was a time that you realized, okay, this is it. Uh, I am in exactly the place I am meant to be. Well, yeah, I mean, we're perpetual students, right? I've never approached anything I've ever done as a, an authority on anything. I've seen, a, I've seen a thousand, I don't know, I could go over a thousand sort of every day. I could probably rewind to every day in the last two years and, and think of a moment. I'm like, yep, this is where I need to be. Yep, this is it. Um, but I think the we're about to, we, we run a program <clears throat> called a field exchange. It's really an empathy into action program because a big, a big part of our work is how do you, it's not, it's not enough to just hear stories. That can be brilliant and beautiful and life-changing. Yes, you can have those moments, right? But when we work with youth, we want them to think about how they can use stories to, you know, think about themselves, their communities and the world and have their place in it and how they can become agents of change, right? And so we have this sort of civic engagement um, program where stories if you don't attach any action steps after a while to all these stories, it could just become voyeurism or whatever after a while. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we bring these schools together. We're about to have actually in a, in a week's time, we're bringing um, a bunch of students from Eastern Kentucky, from the, from the mountains of Kentucky, right. This sort of area that has, you know, had a very beautiful history, but a very complicated history with coal mining and, you know, a, a host of things. And, and as soon as you hear Kentucky, uh, especially in the Northeast, people could just attach a ton of stereotypes to that. And we're bringing these kids over to the South Bronx in uh, New York, right, to hang out for a week with kids in University Heights High School. So this is, um, this is a, um, a school in um, Highland, uh, in, sorry, in Langley, Kentucky, and we're bringing them to University Heights. So these kids are arriving and they spend a week together and we do all of this story work and we sort of expose them to all these sort of amazing thinkers, these artists, these visionaries, you know, these people engaged in their communities very deeply. Um, and then we keep them connected for three or four months afterwards and they come up with their own civic engagement 
um, project between these two regions that never sort of would meet unless we can become the conduit for that, right? And I remember this one kid, <clears throat> um, this was during the pan, this was just pre-pandemic because we haven't done it the last two years, obviously because of travel. And this kid, Ezzedine, he was a kid from Yemen, young kid from Yemen, lovely, lovely kid um, who just graduated. Actually, he's now uh, at college in New York. And we brought him, we brought the students over to, um, actually, this was online, this part. We got them to connect with a bunch of um, poets on Roosevelt Island called the Open Doors Reality Poets. And this is a group of individuals and people that live at um, Cola um, Hospital. And they are um, mostly sort of quadriplegic or paraplegic, um, or they've had extreme spinal injuries, right? And a lot of them um, through disease, but many of them through living in pretty rough areas where gun violence and they've got clipped with, with bullets and they've ended up in wheelchairs, right? So this is a community that not many people know about. We bring these communities together. And this kid, Ezzy, was so moved by their stories because just before we even told stories, some of the guys, we couldn't meet them until sort of after, after in the afternoon because a lot of them don't get moved out of their beds until 11 or 12. And these kids, a couple of these kids showed up late a couple of times or whatever to Zoom. And then they suddenly realized the ordeal that some of these people had to go through just to show up on a Zoom, right? Get lifted from a bed into a chair, into a Zoom to engage. So it sort of rewired a lot of these students' brains. And then they, they really got engaged and they came up with this civic engagement. I've never, it's amazing to me that this happened. And this kid thought, wow, one of the problems is that the blood flow for people in wheelchairs, and I'm saying this poorly, right? I'm paraphrasing terribly, but doesn't, it, it needs help, right? Because they lay in a position for so long or sit in a position for so long. So he went back to his school and he told his physics teacher um, who ran this robotics club, didn't tell any of us at Narrative 4, this is just something he did, right? And he went back and he said, I want to design clothing for these people that will move, help move the blood flow. It's elect they'll send electrical current around. Anyway, so they did it and they took it to this. And I found out like a couple of months later that they entered into this national competition for robotics. Um, they didn't win, but they came pretty damn close. And, and this was all because this one young man, Ezzedine, right, related so profoundly to some of the stories that were being told by the people at, at Cola. Um, and now we have an incredible, and, and he's still pursuing it. This is not over just because he didn't win his class, didn't win some competition. They're still pursuing it. And one of the people that saw his, his design um, worked for Disney. And uh, I can't remember the, who were the dream people at Disney? I can't think of their names now that um, begins with an I anyway. But they got wind of it, and he was so moved that they're going to try and even fund this this kid's project. This is a seventeen. This is an eighteen year old kid now, right? So that's the power of story. Like you can't you can't sort of um, curate for that, right? That is something that just comes up and becomes inspiring and passionate, and you put passion together with an idea, and who knows what can happen. So mm -hmm. those moments happen all the time, and I'm privy to that, and that's what I love, you know. Wow. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, a young man that I interviewed on my podcast a few years ago that was inspired to go into medicine to become a doctor. 
because of his experience watching his mother go through chemo for breast cancer. Mm. And um, that one interaction inspired him to become a doctor. And this kid from Yemen had not experienced anything directly from his family that inspired him to do this. It was through a story of meeting a stranger. <laughs> right. And, and that's just fact, so powerful. Yeah. And it's the, the, the kid I'm talking about too is like he, he saw a poster on a wall in the school for Narrative 4, right? Because they're, they're a school that runs story exchanges all the time. And it said something about empathy and his sister, and he'll tell this story. His sister's like, you're the most un- unempathetic person I ever known. You, you, got, you, you don't even care about anyone. Did so he joined just to see what it was like and to see if he could like figure out this empathy thing that his sister had accused him of not having. <laughs> so it was a beautiful story all the way around. It was just like this sort of each moment, right? Um, sort of inspired the next. Yeah. As that is always the case, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's always the case. And we just have to pay attention to those moments. And what I love about the storytelling aspect of this is that we do uncover those moments that would otherwise be lost. And when we uncover those, we inspire others to uncover their own pivotal moments and look back at that trajectory. How did that even happen? Because if we can share those stories, other people will start to see them and see them in their own lives and and maybe shift their narrative again back to this whole when you uncover the story that has the light as you said the 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 one candle in a dark room it can change an, an entire identity of somebody and how they've seen themselves mm-hmm. yeah and i wish i wish there was more um room for that in some of our sort of climate that exists today right not just in the US, but everywhere. You know? Oh, there's room for it. <laughs> Question. Yeah, there's room, but people are we have gonna to make f- room. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's plenty of room for it. It it but it has to be intentional. And and you're making a dent in that with, with your organization. And I'm I'm so grateful for our introduction that I can't remember who introduced us. Do you remember who that was? I think it was Margaret Larea, who's our director of learning resources. Somehow That's there was a right. It was uh, through Jeff Eichler. Yeah. So Jeff right. Eichler used to work for uh, the company that Margaret works for. Yeah. And she said, you need to meet this guy. And then after <laughs> he met you, he said, Sarah, you need to meet this guy. Yeah. Well, that was very nice of them. And they're right. And I'm glad I, I'm glad our paths crossed. That's for sure. Um, we're on the same, we're in the same lane heading in the right direction, right? Trying to create a more, kind world, kind of world. Absolutely. And I think when I think about my ultimate goal in all the work that I do with StrengthsFinder and storytelling, the keynotes, the book, the podcast, it's really all about encouraging self-reflection and having people better understand how they're being perceived and being more intentional about how they want to be perceived. And you have to have consistent behavior that demonstrates what you want people to know about you. And um, so it all comes back to self-reflection and the way you're telling stories, because it's not the things that happen to you that define you and your identity. It's how you talk about them. Yeah. I always remember uh, um, something I listened to Ruby Sales say, you know, the civil rights leader who's probably in her eighties right now. Um, But she said she, that the sort of catalyst for her to get into you know, the social work and um, 
and sort of engaged with people <clears throat> was when she met a young girl when she was in her 20s and it was a sort of throwaway question. She asked the kid sort of, where does it hurt? And all of this floodgate of, of um, things came out of this young young um, girl based on her life. It was a simple question. So it's the invitation, right? That's really crucial. And not just the invitation, because if you ask a question like that and then you suddenly pick up your cell phone and look at it while they're telling you, then that what that's awful. I mean, you have to listen and you have to listen to understand instead of, instead of respond, right? You just have to listen. You don't even have to respond. Um, and that's the beauty of some of this work too, is it teaches us how to be present and um, not distracted by a thousand things when somebody is telling you something, because inevitably they will if you ask and give them space to do that. Which takes me right back to the first story you told about the young woman who shared the story that she said, I'd never shared that before and hearing that her story partner tell it back from first person was that release for her mm. because he, listened. he was so scared. He was so scared. I'll never forget that kid. He was so scared. And he actually came to me because sometimes we will have the kids in class. We'll have them pair share first. Right. And then we give them the night. At least I have that um, luxury when I was teaching, because I would see the kids sort of four times a week. So I would give them the evening to think about their partner's story and sort of reflect on it before they retold it the next day. And the kid came to see me the next morning and said, I don't think I can tell this story, Mr. Keogh. I can't do it. Like, I don't have the skills to hold. I don't even know. Like, however he said it was, he was very nervous. So I asked those two, I asked um, the young lady if it was okay and would she be generous if he sort of messed it up? I was trying to give him ways in and ways, you know, like, and she right. said, no, 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 I chose you. She said, I wanted you. I sort of headed to you when, and they didn't even know each other before that. She just had a sense about him. Right. And just when afterwards, when he told it, and I'm sure he was shattered, like emotionally, he was sort of burned out and probably the rest of the day was a bit of a blur yeah. for him. I don't know. Absolutely. Maybe I'm projecting, but. No, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. You just know, like, and I remember, I don't know. I've never followed up with him post school, but I wonder what he's thinking about that moment or if he does think about it, I don't know. But that was probably a very powerful moment for him when he realized I too have agency. And sometimes you have to step out your comfort zone and find some comfort in the discomfort, right? In order to do something that could be changed, could change your life as well as somebody else's. The reflective part, I hope he's reflected on that. I always think about it. So. Well, you know, what just struck me is that she said, I chose you. She did, yeah. Because of all the things that that boy could have heard, I, I think those words, I, my eyes are tearing up and that's really unusual for me, but yeah. she used those words and he, he had to own them at that point. That's yeah, there was amazing. no, I felt bad for him. There was no going back getting out of it now <laughs> i chose I mean, how do you yeah he, he intuited that right he intuited that and she did she they didn't speak she, they didn't speak in class they weren't friends they weren't she just had a sense about this kid that he was a nice kid mm -hmm. you know and that somehow he would hold her story and tell it in a way that was graceful or something i don't know what she was thinking but she she made a beeline for him she got so him even as young as that, like, I, I don't know that I was self-aware enough to know how I was being perceived. Um, certainly not in my 
teens and twenties. I definitely wasn't. And he just got a glimpse of his future in (laughs) terms of how he was perceived, the energy that he shared with the people around him, whether he knew it or not. And that's, I should, I should look him up. (laughs) Yes, please do. And then if you follow up, let me know and I'll add it to the show notes for the podcast. Yeah, I do. I will. Maybe I will. I'll try. That would be awesome. And again, I mean, if they're willing to share their names, I, I really believe in sharing names to keep those legacies alive, to, to remember people for the beauty that they brought to our lives and now to our listeners' lives. Lee, if people want to learn more about you and learn more about what you do, where do they go? Well, I mean, they it's not me they're learning about. It's <laughs> it's about the work that we engage in, right? It's um right. yeah, they go to narrative the number four dot com, right? And we have this beautiful digital platform that we just uh launched. Um it was a soft launch about a month ago. And we encourage people to sort of take a look at the work that we're up to. We're in thousands of schools across um, the globe, right? And we not only are we in those schools, we then connect those schools. So there's inter-school exchanges happening. And the idea is to just create this mass, um, this mass of youth that um, tell stories to one another. And there's always teachers at the helm, right? There's these great mentors um, that sort of help help the kids to sort of develop the program in their school. And then it just takes on a life of its own. So you just go to our website. There's, you can, depending on your region, you can click on a a link and it will send you to the right person to, to chat with. But the whole point is really just to move from story um, to embody the sort of artist spirit as well, right? The artist, we have an expansive artist network across the world. um, And, we try and get those artists into schools. There's many ways to tell a story, right? It's not just oral narrative, right? You can do it through music, dance, through mm-hmm. through um, illustration, whatever it is. And and the other thing is then we, we sort of provide these very cutting-edge learning resources for teachers to engage with. So it's like you can you've, you sort of rewrite or flip the script on some of these classic texts as well as all these contemporary texts we have. So, But everything comes back to how do you use story? as a catalyst for things you want to change within yourself or your community. So yeah, it's a pretty beautiful, pretty beautiful concept. And we're 10 years old, so we must be doing something, right? Absolutely. We, start, we started on a shoestring budget. So here we are, thanks to some, you know, angel investors and foundations that support our work. Wow. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, don't worry, we will have links in the show notes for this podcast episode. And uh, they'll be at elkinsconsulting.com. And I'd encourage you to look up narrative4.com and engage on that website just to learn more about what they do and and maybe get involved. Find a way to involve your student in one of these programs. Yeah, Lee, thank no, you. No sitting on the sidelines, right? You can't, you gotta get you gotta get in there and 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 at least be a participant first and start there and then think about how you can also help sort of um, spread this, um, this joy, you know, even if it's just at home, listening to your own kid, tell a story. Oh yeah. Love it. Yeah. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time, your energy, and of course your stories. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. And this won't be the last, right? We'll, 
we'll stay in touch for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.